6.30, so we'll go ahead and begin. Hopefully a few more may wander in here slowly, kind of a nice fall evening. Um, I've asked uh, Scott to start us off with a prayer, so if we would bow, Scott. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the indescribable blessing of your love, and we will come to you and just speak to you, tell you our thoughts, tell you our wishes, tell you our hopes, tell you things that concern us, the things that we ask for. Father, first of all, we thank you for your word you've given us. We thank you for the relationship that you desire from us. Father, help us to better reflect your love to all those that we encounter. <laughs> Uh, thank you for this chance to be able to come tonight to learn more about the echoes from the Old Testament there in the book of Matthew. Thank you for this chance to study, to learn more about you, to know your will. Uh, please go down as he teaches. Help him to use your words to teach us. We ask you to heal all those that we are friends with, that we love, that we care about in this congregation and friends of ours. Help them to all get well. Father, everything we ask, though, is in accordance to your will, and your will be done in all things. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So we are... Continuing our reflections on the road to Emmaus, I think it would be fun to probably actually walk that road, uh, kind of see what these disciples experienced. Uh, the basis for the class is on that road, Jesus in essence said. Uh, they, they were down because they thought Jesus was going to be uh, the prophet who would redeem Israel. And again, that's kind of the overriding storyline. And Jesus, beginning with uh, the law and the prophets, Moses and the prophets, in essence, the, in the Hebrew scripture, told them about himself from that scripture. So what we see then is through the Gospels, we have these echoes of passages in the Old Testament, events in the Old Testament. And those are designed by the writers to give us a, a better picture of who Jesus is. Um, we started last week in Matthew. We kind of said, you know, Mark was very subtle. Uh, the, the echoes that he gave were, we, we had to really be listening uh, to, to hear those echoes. But Matthew really puts them up there. He kind of he makes statements. And he says something ten times. Again, this took place to fulfill what has been spoken through the prophet. And we saw most of those um, Recollections are kind of front-loaded in his gospel, and that was to uh, see that Jesus is a fulfillment of the Old Testament. One thing we talked about was that when Matthew says this was to fulfill, it's not necessarily a predictive prophecy. Again, we saw predictive prophecy about his birth that was recognized as a predictive prophecy. But when Hosea says, out of Egypt I have called my son, Hosea is not prophesying about the Messiah. Matthew is taking that event 
applying it to Jesus and showing how Jesus is a continuation of Israel's story and how Jesus fits into that story. And let's, let's kind of think a moment if Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience, well, Jesus has to fit in that story, else it's all over. There is no need for them to even consider. So this is, this is the gospel writer's way of saying, hey, Jesus fits into this story, and in essence, he completes the story. He adds deeper meaning and more meaning to these events. And it also, in essence, kind of grounds the identity of Jesus in the Hebrew Scriptures. So, So we have that there. We saw Matthew starts out, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And as we look back at this, we see that in the the Greek, it's in essence the book of the Genesis of Jesus. He calls him the Messiah. Again, um, if we think back to Old Testament, Messiah, most of the time in the Old Testament, is translated anointed. Refers predominantly to a king, can be to a prophet. So we have this word Messiah, a lot of times translated anointed, and the Greek version of that word is Christ. So when we see uh, Messiah in the Old Testament, if we were to read that in the Septuagint, which again is the Greek translation of the Hebrew text, we would see the word Christ all the way through the Old Testament. It's not a New Testament word that only applies to Jesus. Uh, We saw, again, By saying the son of David, he is tying Jesus to the royal lineage of David and in essence saying Jesus is suitable to be the king of Israel, earthly king of Israel. He is in that lineage. Ties him back to the son of Abraham. Again, the covenant blessing that came through Abraham, all nations on earth will be blessed through you. This is the blessing that all nations on earth are going to be blessed by. That includes us. So we have this this hint of Gentile inclusion um, already kind of very early on in Matthew. And again, as we noted, uh, Genesis 5.1 is almost verbatim in the Greek. Between, and with Matthew 5.1. So when we see the book of the genealogy of Adam, we have the book of the genealogy of Jesus. In essence, we have a second Adam. And we will see Paul develop that concept more uh, as he's writing to the Romans. Um, so we see that concept. Gary? I, I was wondering. I've, I wonder what the Jews, what the Hebrews thought about Genesis 12:3 All nations of the earth will be blessed through you and right on up to the time of Christ they were very specific and it was only the Jews who were God's people. Correct. And the idea of of associating with Gentiles was sinful was far be it from them to to touch a Gentile. Right. Yet Genesis, all of the earth, all nations are going to be blessed through you. I wonder how they, did they just ignore that or how they process that? I Yeah, I, I hear you on that. We see Jesus going through Samaria and 
kind of how that went over with, with some. Uh, but if we look at, through Torah, again, the old the first five books, what do we see God continually saying? Take care of the stranger in your midst. Um, show mercy to others. So I would, there is a separateness, but there, there probably became too much of a separateness. I don't think they fulfilled the identity that God called them to. I mean, at the time, Peter was, I mean, he, yes. he was an apostle and, you know, there he was. Ten years after Jesus had left and said, go preach my gospel all over the world. Right. He was still thinking to Jews all over the world, not to all over the world world. Right. So they didn't so, get it. They did not. Yeah, that's a, that's very... That's appropriate. Um, say that again. That happens when you have a stiff neck. <laughs> it can. <laughs> um, and Ben Gay doesn't help that either. Um, so Matthew kind of starts the genealogy or kind of ends the genealogy. Generations from Abraham to David are 14. David to the deportation of Babylon. Read that exile. 14 and from the exile to the Messiah 14 so he kind of has these three periods of Israel's history David mentioned twice here and again exile is mentioned um, so the plot of Israel's story is we have the founding covenant and we get this high point with David decline into exile and then we're waiting for the Messiah so Jesus is presented through our gospel writers as various uh, types of Old Testament characters. One being Moses. And if we look through Matthew, we say, how does Matthew present Jesus as Moses? Well, Matthew's account, we see what? Jesus is protected from a ruler's decree, isn't he? Herod is going to kill all the babies in Bethlehem and vicinity. He's told in a dream, you've got to leave birth of Moses. Was he protected from Pharaoh's decree that all the first, all the male Hebrew boys be killed? Jesus was called out of Egypt. Moses was called out of Egypt. Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights. We see that before the temptation. Moses fasted 40 days and 40 nights on the mountain of God. And again, was it a true 40 days? That's not the point. The point is kind of taking us back and seeing that reference. Jesus gives a sermon on the mount. Moses received the law on the mount. And when we look at the sermon on the mount, Matthew says Jesus went up on the mountain and, and began to speak. Did Jesus really go up on a mountain and deliver that sermon? Uh, maybe. But it's not a geographical point that Matthew is making. It's an identity statement. He is, he is saying this is Moses and he's going to say this is greater than Moses. So when Jesus, when he says Jesus going up on the mount, we, we tend to want to take that literally. We see the, the videos and the chosen and all of those and they've got Jesus up on the hillside. It could happen, yes. But the, the deeper point is associating Jesus with Moses and the giving of the law. If we look at the Sermon on the Mount, what, how does the Sermon on the Mount really start? 
first words are what? I'm, I forgot them tonight, so blessed, blessed. What's the first word when we read Psalms? Psalms. Psalms 1 1. Blessed is the man who. So when we see blessed through here, we're, we're kind of seeing literature that looks a lot like the Psalms. Jesus then goes in and talks about interpersonal relationships. And he, he says, you know, hey, don't murder. It's not only don't murder, but don't be angry. And we see Jesus talking about how to treat one another. And our relationship with God sounds a lot like the Torah. He concludes with um, a, a parable, a story. Sounds a lot like what the prophets did. So to some degree, when we look at the Sermon on the Mount, we're seeing a little bit of all of Hebrew, the Hebrew Scripture, kind of all those genres, all those styles of writing combined into the Sermon on the Mount. And that's, I think that's the kind of say, hey, Jesus is representing all of Scripture. Let's look at one more way that um, Matthew presents Jesus as Moses. We'll go back to Exodus 24 to refresh our memory. Uh, then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. So here we have Moses going up to receive the law, a pivotal event um, in Israel's history. Matthew 17. Six days later, Jesus took him with him. Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His garments became white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll make three tabernacles here. One for you, Moses, and Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. As we overlay these two events, do we notice any commonalities. Say that again. Moses is in both places. Moses in both places. And yeah, it's always a wonder how Peter know. I mean, it's not like he had, you know, some baseball cards with Israel's greatest, you know, and oh, there's Moses. Yep. Uh, but somehow he knew and he knew Elijah. What else? What else do we see that's common? Okay, very good. So when we relay these and then we color code our Bible here some, we see what? They both went up on a mountain. Uh, the cloud covered the mountain, cloud overshadowed. Six days is, is kind of repeated in there too. We have a voice calling out of the cloud. If it was one coincidence, okay, maybe... But this many coincidences, I'm saying, no, Matthew intentionally recorded it this way to take us back and say, here is um, Jesus as a type of Moses. And again, Jesus is greater than Moses. Why? What does the voice say? This is my son. Listen to him. And, and when we look back to, to uh, Deuteronomy, when Moses says, hey, there's going to be another prophet who comes like me. Moses says, listen to him. 
What does God say here? Listen to him. So trying again to to bring in this relationship that Jesus is the Moses that was prophesied. And Deuteronomy ends by saying, it hasn't happened yet. We're looking for someone like Moses. And when Deuteronomy ends, uh, the author of Deuteronomy there, when they end that, it hasn't happened. So this is, we're saying here, now it's happening. Within Matthew, as he structures his gospel, there are five blocks of teaching uh, within Matthew. You can just kind of read it and see each of those blocks of teaching. And at the conclusion of each block of teaching, Matthew has, when Jesus had finished these words, when he had finished giving instructions, finished these parables, finished these words, and finally in Matthew 26, when Jesus had finished, notice what how he changes it. All these words... Okay. Uh, some would say, hey, there's five blocks of teaching in Matthew. How many books of Torah? Five books of Torah. Did he structure it that way? Uh, it's possible um, that, that he did structure in that. It would be fascinating if that's true. How do we see, what do we see in Deuteronomy? So Moses went out and he spoke these words when Moses finished writing these words. And then Deuteronomy 32, very interesting statement, right? When Moses had finished speaking all these words to all. So we have this phrase in Matthew that's replicating what happened with Moses. Again, to just continue to paint this picture of Jesus as being Moses and greater than Moses. Well, it looks like Matthew just did a lot of cutting and pasting. <laughs> <laughs> it was easier. I mean, he... Uh, Control V, and there we go. Um, Deuteronomy 31, 31. Moses commissioned Joshua, the son of Nun, said, Be strong and courageous, for you shall bring the sons of Israel into the land. Or God says to Joshua, um, Be strong and courageous, you shall bring the sons of Israel into the land which I swore to them. And what? I will be with you. He continues to say this in Joshua, only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law, which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from the right or the left so that you may have success wherever you go. So this commission given to uh, Joshua is what? I will be with you. Teach others to do all that I have commanded you. Uh, Are we seeing something potentially coming up here? Yeah, Matthew 28. What does he say? Go through with the four, make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name, teaching them to observe what? All that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So again, we see this connection between, again, Joshua, the beginning of the conquest, and, uh, and Jesus, his statement to his disciples. And the, the thing is that... Um, Jesus is saying that I am, my presence is going to be with you. We're going to come back to this in a different setting also, but just kind of know this is here uh, for the moment. Numbers 27. Then Moses spoke to the Lord saying, May the Lord God of God of the spirits of all flesh appoint a man over the congregation who will go out and come in before them and who will lead them out and bring the am in so that the congregation of the Lord will not be like sheep which have no shepherd. Again, we kind of feel like there's a little bit of David in there, but we're, we're well ahead of David at this time. 
But we're seeing this concept of, of Israel at times can be a sheep without a shepherd. What happens when Jesus is wanting to, is with a large crowd? Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because what? They were like sheep without a shepherd. We see on occasion Jesus does feed them. And what is that feeding related back to? What incident in the Old Testament is the feeding related to? Anyone recall? What? Manna. 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 Again, it's just... At least the air conditioning isn't very loud for me today. So, So yeah, we go back to Exodus with manna. And uh, and we see Jesus relating in with that. So we also, so again, those are just some pictures that we see as we go through Matthew of how Jesus is presented as Moses. We also see him presented as David's son. Again, how did Matthew open? Jesus the Messiah, son of David. So we should expect, as we read through Matthew, to see some connection here with David. Um, as, as we go through that, Matthew's already given us a hint. Mark gave us hints. Uh, Matthew's, again, going to make his more openly. Again, obviously at the very beginning, he says Jesus, the son of David. In the genealogy, he says Jesse was the father of David the king. Uh, Matthew 1.17, we saw from David to David. And then Matthew 1.20, when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Was Joseph's father David? No. But was Joseph in the lineage of David? Yes. So we, we have to say, why did, why did Matthew, of all of the ancestors of Joseph, why did he choose David? Well, to again associate Jesus with that kingly reign um, as being a king on the order of David. And as we talked about before, as we went through Mark and we saw some of this, God promised the throne to David and said, you will have an everlasting kingdom. So that's why it's important that Jesus came through the lineage of David. We've seen this passage, again, a predictive prophecy. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. We saw that that comes from Micah 5 too. Mark used it also. And we've, we've talked about that. Um, and as we continue reading in Matthew in Micah 5 too, we get down, um, you know, verse 4. And he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of his Lord God. And we look at that and we go, okay, so that's maybe that's where we see Matthew getting this concept of who will shepherd his people. But it seems to be more of a direct quote than that. It seems like Matthew, you know, we have to move words around a whole lot to get those two concepts. However, if we go to 2 Samuel 5.5, we read this. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron, and he said, Behold, we are bone of your flesh. Previously, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and in. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will be a ruler over all Israel. So really, this is more where Matthew is getting this quote. When David is being called to be king, and what we see in Matthew frequently 
is Matthew will take a passage, take another passage, pull them together, cut and paste, and, and kind of run them together to create, in essence, a little different picture than just either passage alone. It's not because he doesn't understand the Old Testament. He's doing this intentionally to bring these concepts together. So here in 2 Samuel, um, again, David is going to be the king who will shepherd Israel. What is Jesus? Jesus is going to be the king who will shepherd Israel. We see this, this coming together. And again, that you'll be ruler over all of Israel. So Matthew here is in essence telling us the vocation of who Jesus is. Jesus is a king. All through Matthew, look at how we see others refer to Jesus. We have two blind men saying, What? Have mercy on us, son of David. Uh, two blind men, again, similar story. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. They cried out all the more. Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. <clears throat> uh, the demon-possessed man, blind and mute, he healed them. Then the question, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? Interesting question following the healing. Because we go, you know, David's really a king. David was really a shepherd. We don't see David healing much. So it's, why did they associate the healing and, and the blind with, with David? Why did that prompt this question can this be the son of David? And then, um, again, the Canaanite woman uh, came out and began to cry out, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. Um, so, all through Matthew, we see this, others referring to Jesus as the son of David. Let's go to this instance here. We know this, Jesus uh, cleansing the temple, how we'll see it a lot. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple. Overturned the tables of the money changers, the seats who were selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. We saw this also in Mark. We don't see this in Mark though, so this is a little bit new in Matthew. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he held them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things he had done, and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant. So Matthew gives this little kind of note here that the blind and the lame were coming into the temple. So why is that? What, what, does, what does that mean? Let's go back to 2 Samuel 5. We were just there a moment ago. Matthew just quoted from 2 Samuel 5, 5. Okay, who will shepherd, uh, you will be the shepherd of our sheep of Israel. So we now move over to, to verse 6. Now the king, David, and his men went to Jerusalem. Where's the temple? Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land. And they said to David, you shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will turn you away, thinking David cannot enter here. That's a bit of an insult, isn't it? So if, you, if the king comes up to attack you and you say, you know what? We can defend this with blind people and lame people. Um, 
that's a real slap in the face. I don't care what culture you're really in. Nevertheless, David captured the stronghold of Zion, that's Jerusalem, the city of David. David said on that day, whoever should strike the Jebusites, let him reach the lame and the blind who were hated by David's soul through the water tunnel. Therefore they say, and again, this is an interesting kind of tidbit that the writer puts in, the blind or the lame shall not come into the house. So David lived in the stronghold, called it the city of David. So what do we see in David? We see David coming to Jerusalem, overthrowing the Jebusites, and then this comment, since they told him, hey, we can defend this with the blind and the lame, David says, the blind and the lame will not come into this house. So where's the temple? Jerusalem. What did Jesus do in the temple? Overthrew the tables, in essence, capturing the temple back. What is the temple referred to? The house of the Lord. And what does Jesus do, though, that is different than David? Who now come into the temple? The blind and the lame. So we, we again just we we see the mercy of Jesus and how he is greater than David. David was excluding, Jesus is including. I thought the blind and the lame weren't allowed to go in. I would I the court of Gentiles, I might say that yes they were. Once you start moving beyond court of Gentiles, I would I would agree with that. But Jeff is the court of the yeah. So again, we see we see Matthew coming back to this incident and saying, "Here's how Jesus is greater than David because of how he allows the blind and the lame to come in." And it's interesting that, except for the Canaanite woman, um, all the others there was blindness associated with the others who were calling him son of David. Let's move now to Jesus as a sacrifice. Matthew 27. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water, washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And then we have the people's reaction. So Jesus is kind of, or Jesus, Pilate is saying, you know what? I'm clean. I'm innocent. Let's go back to Deuteronomy. Now, I am not uh, implying that Pilate knew this passage. Pilate is just doing what a Roman would do. But there is a correlation here. So, in Deuteronomy 21, God tells them, you know what, if you find somebody who's died in the country, just out in the country, you don't know who did it, then your elders and judges should go out and kind of see, okay, what city is he closest to? Whichever city is nearest the slain man, the elders of that city shall take a heifer, which has not worked or been or pulled a yoke. They'll take the heifer down to the valley with running water. They shall break the heifer's neck. Then the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come near. The, uh, the Lord your God has chosen them to serve him, to bless the name of the Lord. And all the elders of the city, um, which is nearest the slain, slain man, shall do what? 
shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken. They shall say, What? Our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it. Forgive your people, Israel, whom you've redeemed. O Lord, do not place the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people, Israel. So you shall remove the guilt of innocent blood from your midst. So again, Pilate's doing this, but Matthew's, I think, relating this incident back in. So to, in essence, say, here's how far the leaders have moved from following Torah. Because if you have a man who was slain and you don't know who it, it's like, just remove this innocent blood from us. But what do the people say? The people instead shout, well, his blood will be upon us and our children. Again, let's go back to the story of David. David said to the young man, where are you from? He said, I'm an alien, an Amalekite. David said to him, how is it you were not afraid to stretch out and to destroy the Lord's anointed? Who's he talking about? A little history here. He's talking about Saul. Okay. So Saul, Saul has been killed. This guy comes in. He's kind of he's wanting to take credit. He's wanting to get brownie points with the new king David. And David says, "What? How dare you reach your hand out and destroy the Lord's?" And if we read this in the Septuagint, what would we see here? We would see Christ. Okay. That, that's just reading straight Septuagint. That's the word we're going to see. How dare you destroy the Lord's Christ. Messiah would be the other way and anointed again is how it's translated. David called one of the young men and said, go cut him down. So he struck him down and died. David said, what? Your blood is on your head. For your mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the the Lord's anointed. What are the people saying? His blood is on our head. These people are in essence taking the place of the Amalekite that David said, no, you should not have done that. So that's, that's how we see this relating back and how Matthew ties it back. Now then, let's pause for just a moment and think about the statement that they just made. His blood shall be on us and on our children. They did not intend it this way at all. But isn't that a true statement? (laughs) Isn't that what we all need? Is his blood to be upon us, to cleanse us? People can make a true statement and never realize it, right? Didn't Caiaphas prophesy? It's better for one man to die than the whole nation. And the writer says, what? He did this because he was the high priest, not because he knew what was going on. But I don't think in this case they were not referring to the blood as redemptive. Oh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. They had no idea. They, they had no idea the truth that they spoke and how much they needed his blood to be upon them. They were clueless in that. These, this was a vengeful statement. But there is a truth in that statement that we do need his blood upon us and we pray it will be upon our children. Um, but that is not how they meant it. I do not want to present that at all. They were, they were in a fit of rage. Uh, 
but it is a truth. So look to Jesus and covenant. Uh, we see that in the upper room. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after blessing, he broke it, gave it to his disciples, take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup, given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. Back in Exodus 24, again, we see the covenant language uh, throughout the Old Testament. We have the covenant with Abraham, and then we have this covenant at Sinai. Moses came, recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances, and the people answered, all the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. Moses wrote down all the words. Um, he built an altar on the mountain with 12 pillars. He sent young men to Israel. They offered burnt uh, offerings and sacrificed the young bulls as peace offerings. Uh, then he took the book of the covenant, read it in the hearing of the people. They said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and behold, and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. So in a sense, Jesus is, is relating himself back to this event where the children of Israel are saying, We will follow the Lord. And this is the, the blood covenant or the blood of the covenant that Jesus, again, is, is tying himself back to. In Exodus 24, we see Moses and Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, 70 elders. They went up on the mountain. They saw the God of Israel. And under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphires, clear as the sky itself. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel. They saw God, they, saw God, they ate and drank. And we, we try to reconcile with that, with God telling Moses, hey, nobody can see me and live. And yet we have in a case here to where um, they're having a meal with the God of Israel. And when we go back to the upper room, what do we have? They're having a meal. And Jesus is going right back to this event and in essence recreating this event here to show how he is, again, fitting into this story. Zechariah 9. We saw this in Mark. Uh, where, where Mark refers to this, Matthew refers to this also, with the triumphal, we call it the triumphal entry. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout in triumph. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. Humble, mounted on a donkey, even on a coat, colt, the foal of a donkey. And if we continue reading in Zechariah, Zechariah 9.11, just a little bit more, we see this phrase, and, and for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I have set your prisoners free from a, a waterless pit. So the Last Supper is, is both overlaying the covenant banquet in Exodus, where the elders were up on the mountain eating with the Lord, and the messianic promise of the deliverance of the Messiah, tying it in with Zechariah. So we see both of these events in Jesus's entry into Jerusalem. And if we go to Jeremiah, 
Jeremiah says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers. Again, think back to uh, what we just read in Exodus, that I took them out, led them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, but this but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Again, I will put my law within them on their heart. I will write it. I'll be their God. They shall be my people. They will not teach again each man for his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their sin, their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. So Jeremiah is tying in the concept of covenant with the concept of forgiveness of iniquity. And what does Jesus say? My blood of the covenant which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Tying right back in to what Jeremiah uh, foretold or promised from the Lord. Matthew opened... With what? She will bear a son, call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. I hope we're seeing how Jesus is fulfilling or completing the promises that God has made to the children of Israel. So we'll finish up here with this concept of Jesus as God with us. That's that's again we see in Matthew you you shall bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means what God with us. So again another concept that we that we need to see progressing through Matthew is how is Matthew going to show that Jesus is really God with us? How is he going to illustrate that? Um, we get this from Isaiah chapter 7. Uh, the Lord spoke to Ahaz saying, hey, ask for a sign. And in essence, he says, any sign. Deep as Sheol, high as heaven. You've, you've, got a blank, you've got a blank check. Ask for a sign. But Ahaz says, nah, I'm not going to do that. And he said, listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience um, of men? that you will try the patience of God as well. Therefore, the Lord himself is going to give you a sign. Ahaz, you asked for a sign. I'm, I'm telling you, ask for a sign. You're saying, no, I don't want to. I'm going to give you one anyway. Here's your sign. A virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil, choose good. Because for the before the boy will know enough to choose to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. So we'll move back a little bit. What's that mean? Well, Isaiah 7, 4. Isaiah said to Ahaz, Hey, take care, be calm, have no fear. Do not be faint-hearted because of those two stubs of smoldering firebrands on account of the fierce anchor of Rizin and Aram, the sons of Ramalia. God tells Ahaz, hey, these guys are nothing. Do not fear them. Ask for a sign. Well, you won't ask for a sign, I'll give you a sign. A child will be born, and before that child really knows right from wrong, those two kings are gone. 
And that's what Isaiah was talking about. So he's talking about this Emmanuel, God with us, <clears throat> potential deliverance. Ahaz, you have, you have potential deliverance here. Ahaz did not trust the Lord. So what does God say? The Lord will bring on you and your people and on your father's house such days as have never come since that since the day that Ephraim separated from Judah, the king of Assyria. And it will come about in that day that every place where there used to be a thousand vines valued at a thousand shekels will become briars and thorns. We move over, continue in to Isaiah 8. Even the king of Assyria in all his glory, and it will rise up over all its channels and go over all its blanks, banks. Then it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass through it, will reach even to the neck, and the spread of its wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Saying, look, you, you didn't want the sign, and I was going to take out those two kings. But now, because you didn't trust in me, Assyria is coming, and they are going to wipe you out. And where he says, O Emmanuel, read that in a very sarcastic tone. He's saying, really? This land of God with us? Assyria is coming in and wiping you out because of your lack of trust in me. So when we see Emmanuel, God with us, we typically read that as salvation has come in the person of Jesus. Very positive. Is that a true statement? Yes, it is. But by adding the Isaiah reference to what Matthew has said here, when Matthew quotes this, we are also seeing an element of judgment in this term. In the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, what does Jesus talk about? The destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple. At the time of Isaiah, Judah was very vulnerable to the foreign power, Assyria. What did we have in the time of Jesus? Judas is still, Judah is still under a foreign power, Rome. So as we see God with us, those who trust in God's promises will see Jesus as salvation. However, those who reject him will see the consequences, much like we saw in Isaiah. So when we read Matthew and we see God is with us, we do have to discern in what sense is God with us. And we see the rejection of many with Christ throughout the gospel. So we're going to continue with this God with us theme. So at the time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, his disciples were hungry. They began to pick heads of grain and eat. Pharisees saw this, said, look, your disciples do what is not lawful on the Sabbath. Well, again, not lawful according to what the Pharisees' fence that they had put up around the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry? He entered the house of God, and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to eat, uh, but for the priests alone. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. So Jesus defends the disciples 
with a couple of examples. First example is David. David's uh, been on the run. His men are hungry. He goes into the temple. The showbread is there. And he goes ahead and eats it. And the concept we see there is, well, man's needs kind of trump those the ritual showbread. And then Jesus quotes from the Torah. And, he's, and let's, let's look at what he's quoting from. Numbers 28, or at least the concept. Numbers 28, um, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the sons of Israel, say to them, You shall be careful to present my offering, my food for offerings, my fire, soothing aroma to me at their appointed time. So God is commanding the Israelites that they are to have sacrifices. Numbers 28, 9. Then on the Sabbath day, Two male lambs, one year old without defect, and two tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering and as drink offering. This is the burnt offering of every Sabbath in addition to the continual burnt offering and its drink offering. Well, we know these sacrifices don't happen on their own. Who has to perform these sacrifices? The priests have to do what? They're Yeah. <laughs> So the, the priests have to perform the sacrifices. So what are they doing on the Sabbath? They're working. Could you work on the Sabbath? No. The penalty for that was what? Being stoned. So how, how is it that the priests can break the law of the Sabbath? Well, to keep the command of the sacrifice. So Jesus is, is, is giving us this example of where even within the Torah, there are those who do work on the Sabbath to perform uh, duties associated with God. And then he says this, this statement here, that something greater than the temple is here. What was greater than the temple? Well, the one to whom the temple is dedicated would be greater than the temple. And it could be that Jesus is saying that I am greater than the temple and I am here amongst you. Now, is it positive? Well, it's kind of hard because Jesus says something rather than someone. I don't know that I, at least I haven't got it worked out yet. But if it's something is greater than the temple... What did we see last week that Jesus was emphasizing in how we treat other people? He said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. What is greater than the temple? Mercy is greater than the temple. Um, taking care of needs. What was happening? What, what was shown to David for eating the showbread? Mercy. They were in need of food. Another passage we're very familiar with. Again, I say to you, if two or three of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three of you have, or for where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in your midst. Now there was a, um, a Jewish rabbi and, and the, some of the Jewish writings, they have this concept. But two who are sitting together, and there are words of Torah spoken between them, the divine presence, or the Shekinah glory, the glory of God, rests with them. 
So we see this concept here of if two people are talking about the law, then God's glory is with them. Now the thing is, this pass, this this writing from the Mishnah is 200 to 500 A.D. So this is after a couple of hundred years after the time of Christ. So we can't really take this and push it back onto Jesus and, and make that correlation. We can kind of see, okay, in Exodus 20, if we were to reflect upon Exodus 20, it says, you shall make an altar, your burnt offerings, peace offerings, your sheep, your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. So it's, that's kind of as, as the rabbis reflected upon that passage. That's, that's where they got this concept of if, if two are gathered, then... Um, God is saying, my presence is going to be with you. But let's look at, look at the context of this verse. So let's take, again, we've got the last verse. If we go back and we look at the context of what's happening. <clears throat> if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens, you've won your brother. If he doesn't, do what? Take two or, two or more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. So what is the context for verse 20? Context is we have, in essence, a dispute, right? We've got a brother who sinned, or we, we, we're, we've got, it's a, it's a conflict that's happening here. What is Jesus referring back to when he says on the mouth of two or three witnesses? He's going back to Deuteronomy 19. A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a matter be confirmed. If a malicious witness rises up against the man, then both the man who, who have the dispute, what are they to do? They shall go stand before the Lord, before the priest and the judge who will be in office of these days. So we see the concept in Deuteronomy that you need two or more witnesses. And as you come together to resolve that dispute, you are in essence in the presence of the Lord along with the judges and the priests. So when Jesus says, whoops, let me go back here. Let's go back. So when Jesus says when two or three witnesses have gathered, he's really talking about in this context of settling a dispute. And in the context of settling a dispute in Deuteronomy, who were they in the presence of? God. Jesus says, in the context of settling your dispute, whose presence are you in? Mine. Jesus is standing in the place of the Lord in the Deuteronomy passage and saying that as you settle the conflict... I am with you, just as the Lord was with you if you were settling it according to Deuteronomy. Again, let's, again, we're just continuing to see how does Matthew present Jesus as God with us. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branches become tender, put forth leaves, you know, summer's near. Truly I say to this generation, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So Jesus is talking about himself, and what he says is not passing away. What do we read in Isaiah? 
Grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. So if we look at the passage in Isaiah, whose word stands forever? God of Israel. And now Jesus is saying what? My words stand forever. So if we do the math, if God's words are the only words that stand forever and Jesus says my words stand forever, Jesus is saying what? I am, I am the God of Israel. I am equal to the God, uh, to, to this God. Matthew 24, again, we, we we're familiar with this. The Son of Man, and we've talked about the Son of Man reference from Daniel, how that is a divine reference. It's not an earthly reference. It is a divine reference uh, to Daniel chapter 7. All the nations will be gathered before him. He shall separate them one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Uh, then we, we see this. We're, we're familiar. I was hungry, and, and you gave me something to eat. Um, I was thirsty, you gave me, I was sick, you visited me. They said, when did we see that? And Jesus says, what? Truly I say to you, to the extent you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. What concept is Matthew playing, or is Jesus saying here? Matthew's playing on this. Proverbs 19.17 one who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord and he will repay him. Uh, the Dewey translation renders it, I think, a little better. He that hath mercy on the poor lendeth to the Lord and the Lord will repay him. So when Jesus says what? When you show mercy to the least of these, you have done it to me. Proverbs says, when you show mercy to the least of these, you have done it as unto the Lord. So we see Jesus again taking on this same role that the God of Israel um, has said for himself. So as we go through Matthew, we see that Jesus is, um, I think, greater than the temple. We see that he is worthy of worship. We didn't look at this passage, but when we look at the calming of the sea, when Jesus is walking and and they calm, or when when they're on the boat, they row out. It's a big storm. Um, Mark just says, hey, uh, Jesus, you know, can, can you help us out here? In Matthew, it's Lord, save us. More of a prayer. And afterwards, Matthew's account is the disciples worshiped him. And we see that Jesus did not discount that worship. And we learned last week what? When Jesus was tempted by Satan, what did he say? You shall worship God alone. So by Jesus saying you shall worship God alone and receiving worship from uh, the disciples, he again is is placing himself as God with us. Uh, Again, He has placed himself as being with us and and as recipients from the acts of mercy. So Matthew starts off saying, God is with us. Matthew 28, the 11 disciples proceeded from Galilee from the mountain. When they saw him, they worshipped him. Again, we're at the very end of Matthew. 
But some were doubtful. Have you ever noticed that? That, that some even then were doubtful. Go therefore and make disciples of all men, all nations, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you, and I am with you always. So uh, probably going to go over about two or three minutes here, if that's okay. Last, last little bit with this God with us and I am with you. In Genesis 28, Jacob is at Beersheba. He sees this dream. In verse 13, Yahweh was standing there beside them. Uh, he tells them that all the people on earth will be blessed through you. I am with you. I will watch over you. I will not leave you until I've done all I've promised you. So when we read Jesus telling his disciples, standing beside them, saying, look, I will be with you. Go teach this to all nations. We're seeing, in essence, the story of Jacob repeated. Jeremiah 1.7 but the Lord said to me, Do not say I am a youth, because everywhere I send you, you shall go. And all that I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. To deliver you, declares the Lord. Haggai. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. So for Jesus to go to his disciples and say, I will be with you always, he is making a statement that the Lord made to Haggai, that the Lord made to Jeremiah, that the Lord made to Jacob. Only the God of Israel can say, I am with you always. And Jesus makes the same claim for himself. So for those who doubt that Jesus knew he was divine, or that Jesus never said that he was equal to God, um, it is all through the Gospels if we look for it and see the relation between Jesus and the events in the Old Testament. Okay. So, not too bad. Next week, we will start Luke. So we'll have two weeks in Luke. Again, thank you for your time and patience. I appreciate you being here. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the Senior Minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.